Our first lesson is a reading from St. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, beginning with the 11th chapter, the second verse. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied prophesies with his head cover dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but, a, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is, the, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second lesson is a reading from St. Paul's first letter to St. Timothy, beginning with the second chapter, the 15th verse. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one who deceived. It was the woman who, who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So tonight we begin our series of Lenten Wednesday homilies on crowd-sourced topics, topics suggested by parishioners. And we had quite a diversity of suggestions, so the approach and focus of these homilies during Lent may vary a lot from one Wednesday to the next. Tonight's study will definitely be one of biblical study, 
as we will look at a passage of Scripture from Paul's first letter to Timothy. There are many passages in the New Testament that concern the role of women in worship or in the household or both. And this is a sensitive subject, but it is also one of great interest to many. Just since I announced on Sunday that we'd be talking about this tonight, I've heard from a number of parishioners who expressed interest or enthusiasm about um, hearing this text exposited tonight. Well, there are many who believe Scripture teaches that women should be subordinate to men, including in marriage. And this is understandable, because if we were to do a quick survey of the New Testament letters that address the role of women, it would seem there are many passages that endorse such a patriarchal structure, including the two passages that we read tonight. So I certainly respect how Christians could hold this point of view. I've even, to some degree, adhered to it myself in the past. And by addressing this subject tonight, I am by no means telling anyone what they have to believe. One of the gifts, in my opinion, of Anglicanism is that we can respectfully debate and disagree within the safety and grace of our common faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be honest, though, that in recent years, my perspective on this doctrine of the subordination of women within Christianity has shifted. For me, part of this shift was spurred because I could see some bad fruit that had come from it, that comes from it. We've probably all seen it borne out in some marriages where a husband actively or passively uses this doctrine to control his wife or to disempower her. Conversely, there may be marriages where a wife may use the theology of the subordination of women, sort of ironically, to actually place spiritual expectations on her husband that are burdensome and, again, don't bear good fruit. In addition to this, in the church, this doctrine has certainly marginalized valuable female voices and perspectives from being heard. But this isn't to say that all of the fruit is bad. There may be at least the semblance of good fruit in the, the, this hierarchical approach of subordination. For example, it may provide a sense of order, of clearly defined roles, which to some can feel good, feel safe, familiar, predictable. But I do wonder whether any of these should be the goal or expectation of our life in Christ. I'm not sure they are. So what may seem like good fruit may not really be good fruit and truth. However, when I see bad fruit, whenever I see bad fruit on a large scale created by any church doctrine, I am inclined to question why that is. And when we ask the question why in this instance, there are a lot of things to consider. Our personal experience or observations of what's going on in the church are, of course, going to be considered 
as we just talked about with my own shift in thinking, as I saw more bad fruit than good come from this teaching about women's subordination. Then another important thing to consider is church tradition. We don't want to dismiss or deny that the church has thought about these scriptures for a long time, and that means something. So in this case, for much of its history, the church has taught the doctrine of men's headship and women's subordination, at least to some degree or another. That's to be recognized. I will add, however, that we should be careful not to fall into a a fundamentalism about church tradition or the church's traditional interpretation of Scripture. The church is not God, not all-knowing, not without blind spots in any era. Therefore, the church's traditions are not infallible. Accordingly, its interpretation of Scripture is not static, but rather dynamic, which means it can and sometimes should change its understanding of, of passages, certain passages of Scripture. So with all of that preamble, all of that being said, I now want to introduce you to the work of scholar Lucy Pepiot, who is the principal of Westminster Theological Center in the UK and author of quite a few books on the writings of St. Paul. I want to share a little about what she's written about the New Testament teachings on the role of women and on the end of 1 Timothy 2 in particular from her book Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. While Pepiot's perspective is just one among many, of course, in my opinion, it is by far the soundest and most consistent I've come across. And I recommend it to anyone who would like to dig more deeply into these questions. You can check it out on Hoopla. In the book, though, Pepiot, first of all, proposes a paradigm-shifting interpretation of the other passage that we looked at tonight. 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, that tends to tie Bible translators and interpreters in knots, for sure. Typically, this scripture is interpreted to mean, to teach, that women are subordinate to men, and that women should demonstrate this by praying with their heads covered. But Pepiot makes the case that that was an attitude and practice in the Corinthian church that Paul is actually seeking to discourage. He's seeking to discourage kind of making the women wear these, these head coverings. Let me explain why. Let me explain her logic. Most of you know that the New Testament was written in ancient Greek, which is now a dead language. So we as modern-day English speakers rely, therefore, on translations. Again, most of you probably already knew this. But what's not so commonly understood is that the original ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament did not have chapter numbers or verse numbers. But more than that, there were no spaces between words and no punctuation. This is very different from what we might assume. But if you just look at the picture of what's known as Papyrus 46 that is on the screen, 
This is probably the oldest parchment of New Testament scripture we have. It's from the late 2nd century. And you'll see that it's just a string of capital Greek letters. And this isn't even an original manuscript, right? To that point, there actually is a little bit of punctuation on it that some copyists made. You can also see, though, on the screen the contrast and how the New Testament manuscripts would have originally been written versus the spaced out and punctuated versions that we would see today in a modern Greek New Testament based on those all capital, no non-punctuated type of original source. At least. So as you can see, or maybe now understand, in copying the New Testament manuscripts through the centuries, we as the church have had to make a lot of guesses about where words begin and end and where punctuation might be appropriate and make educated guesses about where the biblical writers are moving from one thought or subject to the next. And this isn't, this isn't to, to cast doubt upon the authority of, of the, the Bible that you have and those sorts of things. Scholars believe they have at least 98% of it completely nailed down. But there, there are some, some, uh, some unknowns related to a few things. So returning to 1 Corinthians 11, there, the way that it's traditionally been translated, Paul seems to completely contradict himself in a matter of just a few verses. In verses 8 and 9, those verses seem to encourage subordination. Paul writes, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. But then, Paul seems to say after that, that men and women are instead mutually, mutually and equally dependent upon one another in verse 11. There he writes, Nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Well, as Lucy Pepiot reminds us, and which you may or may not know, 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, is not actually the first communication between Paul and the church in Corinth. Instead, we know that this letter is actually a letter that Paul writes in response to a letter he had received from the church of Corinth that is now lost, right? So Pepiot suggests that at certain points in this passage, because Paul is writing to this lost letter from the Corinthian church, lost to us, that Paul at certain points in this passage is actually quoting some of the incorrect things that the church in Corinth had written, written about in their initial letter. Pepiot suggested in, in the verses I've put in orange, Paul is actually quoting some incorrect things, understandings, that the Corinthian Christians had written about to him. And remembering, keep in mind, that the original manuscripts did not have punctuation, spacing, etc. I think then you'll see, begin to see, why Pepiot's proposal is so compelling. It makes a lot more sense than these contradictions from one verse to the next. What this would mean, though, is that Paul is making a correction in verse 11 to the subordinate view that the Corinthians held and, and were, that he was quoting from them in verses 8 and 9. 
But it would also mean that Paul would have meant something very different in the first part of this passage, which is in regard to man's headship. If verses 4 and 5 aren't Paul's view, but the view of the Corinthians, then he must mean something very different here than than many have assumed. But this brings up a second challenge of translation which is that many ancient Greek words don't have a one-to-one correlation to any English word. For example, famously, there are four different Greek words that all end up being translated as love in our English translations. Greek had four words for love, in English we have one, which leads to a lot of confusion, by the way. On the other hand, With other Greek words, there may be as many as ten English words that that Greek word can be translated into. Ten different ways to understand it. At least with some variance between them. Therefore, every translator of the Bible is also tasked, as they translate the Scriptures, tasked with interpreting the Scriptures, with with making often multiple decisions in just a single verse based on what they think the biblical writer is trying to say, trying to get at. And like any pursuit of the truth by humans, this exercise can never be totally free from bias. So after demonstrating why many of the traditional interpretations of the word translated head in verses 3 and following, after demonstrating why why many of those traditional interpretations are problematic, where Paul, he's referring in this section to God being the head of Christ, Christ being the head of man, and man being the head of woman, Pepiot posits that Paul is instead merely affirming that the spiritual strength and stability of the husband is important and that it is like She suggests that what what that word head in the Greek means is like a headstone or a cornerstone of a building and that it has an impact on the strength and stability of every other piece of that building. And therefore, the, the husband, his spiritual strength and stability has an impact on the spiritual condition of every other member of his family. But she contends that is something different from suggesting women's subordination. But while we're on the subject of translating words in regard to women, it's also a surprise to many, it certainly was to me, that there's actually a woman whom Paul mentions as being an apostle. Her name is Junia in Romans 16, verse 7. Now, you've probably never heard of her. But about 500 years ago, figures like Martin Luther began translating this passage as if Junia was a man. And you can read more in my manuscript footnotes for that crazy story. But while no one really defends that perspective anymore that Junia was a man, this shows how Bible translation is not immune from bias. And this continues even today. Just look at how the ESV translators have chosen to interpret and translate the words around Junia on the screen. The English Standard Version says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, 
So they're making it seem as if Junia was not an apostle, and they were in Christ before me. Contrast this with how the NIV translate it, translates it, where it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are, including a Junia, outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So those are some issues, right? Some some issues of interpretation. The original text didn't have punctuation, really spaces. Also, individual words can be very, can have multiple meanings, or there can be multiple Greek words that we only have one word for in English. But in addition to all of that, most importantly, it is important for us, if we want to determine, to best determine what a biblical writer was intending to say, it's most important that we seek to understand the context that it was originally written in. What was going on at the time? How would the original audience likely have heard what was written in contrast to our 21st century minds? For example, you have a passage like the end of Colossians 3, which we looked at in our series on that book two summers ago. It not only addresses wives and husbands, it also addresses slaves. And of course, as many of you know, for years in this country, this passage was used to justify slavery. Slaves submit to your masters. But in fact, a study of Paul's context shows that he was actually modifying a type of document that was popular in the first century called a Roman household code. Those Roman household codes would have been used to permit Roman men to, quite frankly, completely dominate their wives and children and slaves. So by kind of taking that type of document and modifying it, Paul was turning the whole thing on its head. By inserting commands for the husbands, that would have been completely unheard of. And also by explicitly addressing, even acknowledging the wives, speaking directly to them, as well as the children and slaves, this elevated those people, those, in a sense, weaker people, weaker positioned people, it elevated their standing because Roman household codes would have, would have only addressed the man. So context is so important. And needless to say, that is also the case with the passage that I want us to now look at tonight, finally. There is much more going on than meets the eye in 1 Timothy 2. This passage has sadly been used to justify probably the most extreme uh, ill-treatment of women in the church because it seems to disallow women from speaking, from teaching, from leading, And it even seems to blame women, specifically Eve, tracing it to Eve, to blame women for the fall of humanity into sin, which led to the unfortunate false doctrine of the curse of Eve, you know, pinned it all on the woman. But Pepiot proposes an alternative understanding of this text than this grotesque uh, interpretation. It's based in part on more recent scholarship, which differs considerably from what you might call the plain sense reading, mostly because of context. Context, context, context. Now, as I see it, the biggest problem with any interpretations that are popular on this passage, 
from either side of the debate over the role of women. The biggest problem comes in the seemingly bizarre verse 15 about women being saved through childbirth. This verse seems to have nothing to do with what Paul's talking about in the verses before and after. And taken on its face, it seems to contradict the rest of Scripture's teaching on salvation, which is, of course, that we can only be saved through Christ, through justification by faith, by grace through faith. But Pepiot notes there are also plenty of other questions this text raises, apart from just verse 15, such as, in verse 12, why does Paul seem to prohibit women from teaching, particularly when he seems to affirm just the opposite in some of his other letters, not only with Junia, but also with Phoebe, Priscilla, and others? Also, In the same verse, what the English reader can't see is that Paul does not use the typical New Testament word for authority. Instead, he uses a word that never appears anywhere else in the Bible and therefore is somewhat mysterious as to its meaning. Third, in the end of the paragraph, why does Paul bring Adam and Eve into this? And why does Paul seem to blame Eve for the fall when elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, Paul seems to single out Adam if he's singling out anybody? Well, where the plain sense reading leads to just more questions than answers, it begs for the need for deeper study, which Pepiot has done for us. So I'm going to attempt to relay some of those findings to you as briefly as I can here. But for more detail, you'll want to read her book, or at least maybe read the footnotes of this manuscript. Pepiot explains that we need to understand that when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Timothy is overseeing the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city where the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis was dominant because there was a temple to Artemis in the city of Ephesus. And a number of more recent scholars have begun suggesting that this passage is addressed to women, not just any women, but women who were recent converts to Christianity from the cult of Artemis, the worship of this Greek goddess Artemis. You see, there were many reasons that the worship of Artemis was more significant for women than for men in Ephesus. And I'm going to offer just four and list them on the screen. First, as Artemis was a female deity, women were called, expected, to dress up in a manner that imitated her, particularly for worship, which included braiding their hair and potentially immodest dress. If they were trying to dress like Artemis, You will note in the picture on the screen that Artemis is depicted with an exposed chest with many breasts. This suggests that in verse 9, Paul is encouraging women who'd converted to Christianity to give up dressing in a manner that signified Artemis worship. It'd be like telling somebody who converted from, I don't know, satanic worship to Christianity today, like, you know, get rid of all that symbolism. 
You know, dressed in something other than black or something. I don't know. It's not fair. That's the first thing. Second, women in Ephesus were also expected to perform public good deeds to Artemis. They were expected to make generous donations out of what the Greek word is eusebia. That is a Greek word meaning piety to Artemis and the other gods. But in verse 10, Paul encourages these women, converts, he encourages them to do good deeds with a different motive. In the whole, in fact, the whole end of that verse that reads, appropriate for women who profess worship to God, that is essentially one word. And that word is not, is theosebia. Instead of eusebia, it's theosebia, for God's glory. So instead of good deeds of eusebia, Paul is telling them to do good deeds for theosebia, for God's glory. Third, It is well attested that the legend of Artemis had become, by Paul's day, linked in Ephesus with a myth about the Egyptian goddess Isis. Not to be confused with 21st century Isis. This was an Egyptian goddess named Isis, who was the goddess of fertility and also believed to have power over people's fate, which will become more important in a minute. But in particular, the myth about Isis taught that women were the authors of men, that man came from woman. And therefore, women were superior to men in their religious understanding. According to Pepiot, for women who came out of this cult of Artemis and Isis, for those women who were newer converts to Christianity, this could have led them to be overconfident about what they knew about their understanding and wisdom and therefore could have caused them to assert themselves accordingly like they knew what was up and no man could tell them what to do or teach them and that sort of thing. If so, this would explain why Paul is declaring that these women should learn in quietness and full submission because he's telling them they need to spend time learning the faith before they can teach the faith. They're acting like they know it already. They're just babies in the faith. And indeed, the Greek word, therefore, I do not permit, that phrase in verse 12, it's typically used more in the sense of disallowing something in a particular situation rather than prohibiting something for all time. But this would also clarify why Paul then brings up Adam and Eve. When he notes in verse 13 that Adam was formed first, then Eve, Pepiot suggests he is countering the Isis myth that men came from women, right? That that women were superior to men, that Paul's countering that. And when Paul then writes that Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, it's not that Paul's blaming Eve for all human sin or saying she's worse than Adam, but rather uh, he's suggesting that women are no, no better than men, that all are equal before the, the, the cross, you know, that, that women are no less vulnerable to sin and to being deceived than men are, despite what that myth of Isis or Artemis may have claimed. Well, this leads us finally to verse 15. 
and Paul's seemingly off-the-wall comment about women being saved through childbearing. A final thing to know about Artemis is that she was believed to be the goddess of childbirth and midwifery, midwifery? I don't know. Y'all help me. Rather than looking out for expectant mothers, though, Artemis, as the goddess over childbirth and kind of the, the, the bearing of children, Artemis was, was instead feared. Women feared her because she was believed to be the one who determined whether a mother in childbirth would live or die. Childbirth, of course, being, you can imagine how dangerous in those days. And, and this was believed about Artemis, who again had been kind of merged with, with Isis, who's the goddess over people's fate. <laughs> but this was believed to the extent that, that Artemis even became known as a, quote, savior for those giving birth. And so just imagine, imagine if women were taught, the women of Ephesus were taught their whole lives, whatever you do, don't tick off Artemis. Because Artemis, you know, or else if you do, you risk dying in childbirth. Imagine these women had believed the gospel and converted to Christ. I think we can still say it might be understandable that they might be vulnerable to weak faith around that life event of, of childbearing. That they might, in that one little situation, want to kind of keep a foot in both religions and you know, just cover their bases in case that Artemis really was still, is still real. So Pepiot suggested in verse 15, Paul is encouraging these female believers not to trust in Artemis, not to worry about her, because she's not real, of course, but to trust instead in the Lord, because he is the one whose protection they should desire and seek after when giving birth. And added to this, Pepion actually suggests that the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, remember there were no verse or chapter numbers, that that's actually the completion of Paul's thought in this last verse of of chapter 2. So that Paul is saying, but women will be saved, preserved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And this is a trustworthy saying. Paul's saying, you can trust me when I'm saying that, when I write that. You don't need to worry about art. So Lucy Pepiot suggests that there were women in the church at Ephesus whose faith remained impacted by their past devotion to Artemis, both in remaining influenced by the heretical teachings and as well as the the fear that, that Artemis would seek vengeance upon them during childbirth. And if this is the case, Paul's instructions then are not to be read as binding upon women for all time, but only in that particular situation in the first century church in Ephesus. And so this is my answer to the question of how best to interpret and understand 1 Timothy 2. I've given you, I'm sure, more than enough to chew on tonight. I appreciate you for hanging in there with me, those who have. If you'd like to review what I've shared or dive deeper into the footnotes, the manuscript is available on our website right now. And um, if you'd like to discuss it further, 
please don't hesitate to reach out or even post a question or comment uh, in the Facebook uh, feed tonight. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.